0: Always a special moment when we recognize our seniors. Extra special to me this year for the obvious reason that uh, one of them in particular uh, carries our name. But proud of every one of you seniors and excited for your future and, and all that is to come. I want to take a moment now before we jump into our sermon this morning and dismiss our Kids for Kids crew. So this is going to be for children who are fourth grade and under, along with our leaders, they're going to head upstairs. And even as they go, I want you to, I want you to take note of something. I want you to, to pay special attention to just the, the, the people who pour into and invest in our, our children, because it's not long that they go from being uh, this size to what we just saw. And it happens quickly. And that's something that, uh, as parents, we understand well. Whatever age your kids are, whether they're still young or whether they've grown, you you recognize that this is something that goes quickly. But even more than that, even more than just the fact that the time passes and, and, and all of that, we understand that there's a a tension that we live with between wanting to keep them and wanting to hold on to them and keep them young if somehow we could, but also understanding that really our job is to launch them. Our job is to, is to raise them so that they can go and they can be successful. And um, it's not lost on me on this day of all days especially that it takes, it takes a church, it takes a, a community, it takes a group of people to invest in and pour into our kids. And so I want to say to you, for, from the heart of a pastor, but also today from the heart of a parent, thank you for the ways that you invest in and and help us to equip the future generations. You know, we say that the mission of our church is to love all people to faith in Christ and multiply disciples. And when I see these young people standing here ready to launch into the world, and when I see these kids, I, I think particularly about that idea of multiplying disciples. That's what we're doing. We're raising them up to to send them out that God may continue to use them. Well, I was a kid once too, myself, uh, one, once upon a time, and uh, it seems like it's, that's further and further in the rear view. I suppose that's how time works, right? That The, the further we go uh, down, down the road in time, the further in the rear view it was. But one of the things I remember particularly from my childhood were the sitcoms, the TV shows. And one of the reasons that I, I was thinking about that this week is because if you like me, if you grew up or even if you maybe you weren't growing up considering yourself growing up, but you remember the era of TV with the kind of the height of the 30-minute sitcom, right? The you could say in the 1980s into the 1990s was kind of when these sitcoms were at their height. And one of the things that that has been said a lot about these sitcoms is that they tried to pose an issue and solve it all within the matter, the span of about 30 minutes time. And really, truly, if you factored out all the commercial time, right, maybe more, more like about 20 minutes time. That they would present some issue, some dilemma, some, some problem, something that was happening. And by the end of the show, it was all fixed. Everything found its resolution and, they, and, and these characters lived in this world. Well, they just went from one event to the next of problems that could be solved. And the reality is that that's not at all how life works. That's not at all how, how the real world operates. And so uh, over time, you know, some TV producers and writers decided they would be a little edgier, and they would, they would take a little bit of the shine off of the sitcom. And so they began to write shows with a little more reality, shows with a little more edge, and those shows gained popularity. And then... And then streaming took off, and and all of a sudden, you, you could watch an entire season worth of TV back to back to back to back, right? You could binge watch TV shows, and that really changed the way that writers began to write for, and directors would direct, and so on, these... TV shows because no longer was there the pressure to pose a problem and solve the problem all in a matter of about 30 minutes now you could you could play the story out you could develop a story over the course of a season or multiple seasons you could trace a story arc and there would be more character development and those things and it began to look maybe a little bit more realistic in that regard but the truth is that even still we understand that life is a lot more three dimensional than what we see on a a TV show, or in a movie, or read in a book, or some other form of entertainment, because the reality is that we're real people who live in a real world with real problems, where things are coming at us from all sides, and sometimes the solutions seem rather plain in front of us, and sometimes it's not that way at all. Sometimes the the solutions are much harder to find, and and the reality is that, that we have to struggle a lot more, and sometimes, frankly, it doesn't resolve, or maybe it does, but it doesn't resolve the way that we want it to. That's reality. That's life. That's the the world that we live in, that there's this tension between truth, this tension between what we know and what we desire, this tension between what we see and what we understand and what we don't understand. And in particular, the passage that we're going to study, the chapter really that we're going to look at in Romans chapter 9 this morning, presents to us some of that tension. Now, a few weeks ago, as we were preaching through Romans 8, because we're just working our way through the book of Romans, I shared with you Obviously, Romans 9 was coming, and that, for me, this is a passage that has always troubled me. Romans chapter 9, if I'm just being really honest and really transparent with you, Romans 9 is always a chapter in the Bible that has troubled me, and as we read through it, I think you'll understand why. But in particular, there's some things here that it's not that I don't believe that God is is sovereign and in control over these things, and it's not that I don't believe in His power and His authority and His divine right to do whatever He pleases. I I do. It's just that it's trying to hold in tension the truth that we see in Romans 9 along with the truth that we see elsewhere. Frankly, you can just turn the page to Romans chapter 10. Because on the one hand, in Romans chapter 9, there, there, there seems to be this truth that God chooses us at His will for His pleasure according to what He chooses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's what he says in Romans chapter nine and then in Romans chapter ten we read that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and that God desires for everyone to be saved and he desires for us to go. And so which is it? Is it that God chooses some or that God wants everyone? And we have to we have to struggle and hold in tension these truths as we look at these things and, and understand that it we're not going to find a TV sitcom sort of answer to this. There's not going to be this this uh, this this easy, dismissive way that we can just simply explain away these truths. These are difficult, weighty, doctrinal, theological truths. And one of the things that I take comfort even in as I stand here before you this morning is the reality is that for 2,000 years, Bible scholars have been wrestling with these truths and they haven't got it all figured out yet. So I'm just here to tell you we're not going to figure it all out in the span of 30 minutes as I preach this morning. It's not going to happen. But I am convinced that we can go to the Word this morning, and we can study God's truth, and we can ask God through His Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts and to enlighten us, and what is more, to help us respond in obedience to what we do see and what we do know and what we do understand, that we might continue to follow Him and obey as we press forward, as we lean into these truths. If you've been with us along the way as we get to the end of Romans chapter 8, you realize that Romans chapter 8 feels like it closes out with some finality the book of Romans. In fact, a lot of scholars have written about the fact that it feels almost as if you could be done with the book of Romans after Romans chapter 8. Romans has 16 chapters, so there's eight more to go. We're only at the halfway point. But in a lot of ways, it feels like what what Paul has been saying in his, ration, his rationale, his reasoning, his argument, kind of finds its climax almost with this high point in Romans chapter 8 where he reaches the point where he says, listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is working on our side, what else is it that... Could be against us there 's nothing in all of this world, nothing in all of creation, nothing in, in, in anything to come that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What a great and amazing truth that is, and yet he 's not done there because he anticipates he anticipates the response of his audience, he anticipates the response that might be coming well if if that 's true paul if that 's true, then why and that's really where we dive into Romans chapter 9 and even in the in the chapters to come now i will tell you that today we're going to look at all that well not all we're going to look at the first 29 verses which is the majority it's the bulk of Romans chapter 9 and then after today we're putting Romans on pause for the summer. We have another summer series that we will do throughout the summer. Uh, next week, we'll have Dr. Heath Thomas, the president of Oklahoma Baptist University, with us. And then following that, we launch into our summer series. So after today, we put it on pause. But in August, at the end of summer, we will pick up again with the remaining part of Romans 9 into Romans 10. And we will finish out the fall up into the time of Advent, which is Christmas time, studying and finishing out the book of Romans. And so if you're at the point where you're not caught up, you can go backward on our. You can find us on social media, you can go on our YouTube channel, you can go on our website, you can listen, you can get caught up on our study of Romans, and then we'll be ready to dive in. But today, as it stands, we're going to tackle what is, for me personally, one of the weightiest and even the the most difficult passages in all of the Bible to wrestle through. and. Honestly, I'm excited for this. I'm excited to jump in and deal with this today because it's even as we dive into the deep truths, as we get into the deep end and the deep waters, that's really where our faith and our understanding is stretched and grown, and I pray that that will happen today as we study. So let's read together Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read 29 verses together. It's a lot, but I'm going to cover ground pretty quickly this morning and then come back and observe these key truths that we want to look at. Paul writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. I want to pause long enough just to summarize briefly what he's saying. He's, he's Essentially, he's saying that, that God is faithful because the the the... Question: the the reasoning that he anticipates that his audience might come up with is okay. If if there's nothing that can separate us from Christ, then how is it that some of God's very chosen people, the Israelites, are cut off and separated from the faith? Paul and Paul's writing. Well, you understand, that none of us none of us belong just by our ethnicity we belong rather by faith. And he's pointing to the fact that that was even true with the nation of Israel. Yes, there were many who were ethnically Israelites, but ultimately it were those who were, who, who were believers by faith, those who trusted and, and, and believed God and accepted these truths by faith that were welcomed in as children of God, children of Abraham, sons of Abraham. That's his, his rationale. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's pr- purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, "...those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in this very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God." And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, "...though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay." as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I, I trust that God will help us to understand this truth this morning as we, as we lean in. But I, I think it's important that we understand the, the big picture vision of what's happening here, okay? Because particularly in Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11, there's a central question that paul is dealing with a lot of scholars a lot of bible theologians a lot of a lot of bible readers for that matter whether you have the scholarly aspirations or not a lot of people read this and they want to make it about soteriology. Now what is soteriology? What's that even mean? Soteriology is just a fancy word for saying the study of salvation, okay? So the study of salvation. A lot of people want to look at this and they want to make it about the study of salvation. Maybe you've heard of a term before called Calvinism. You've heard, perhaps you've heard about Calvinism. You say, well, what's, what is Calvinism? Calvinism is a system of teaching, a system of theology that derives its its, its name, at least from the namesake, a reformer in the in the church whose name was John Calvin. And John Calvin wrote these Institutes of Christian Doctrine, and in his Institutes of Christian Doctrine, hundreds and hundreds of pages worth of writing, he presents his views of the Scripture. And in part of that, from that really, through what was called the, uh, the Synod of Dort and Westminster Confession and other things, they developed a system of teaching that is commonly referred to a lot of times these days as Calvinism. And so Calvinism poses these truths, okay? Now this is, this is an oversimplification, to be honest with you. And, and let me say, Calvin himself, John Calvin, never taught Calvinism. He never developed it into what we call Calvinism today during his lifetime. But in in the days since then, they've taken the teaching of John Calvin, they've distilled it down, and often you hear Calvinism presented with the term TULIP. Have you heard that before? You may think, what is TULIP? So it's about a flower? No, TULIP is just an acronym that helps. So it's five letters, T-U-L-I-P, and the TULIP stands for total depravity, Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Those are five categories of teaching, or five key truths, the T-U-L-I-P, that are commonly referred to as Calvinism, And so a lot of Calvinists, this is a passage of Scripture where they want to camp out. They want to look at Romans chapter 9 and they really want to zero in on Romans chapter 9. And and although I think that Romans chapter 9 does teach us some key things about soteriology, about the study of salvation, and I do think that we have to understand and hold in balance these truths, I think we also need to look at Romans chapter 10, for example, and I think we need to look at other Scriptures. And so the same Bible that teaches us that God maybe has a plan for even those who don't believe in a way that they will bring Him glory through experiencing His wrath. And that's what Romans 9 says, is that those, even those who reject God's truth ultimately bring Him glory in, in the fulfillment of His justice that they, that they experience His wrath. That's a hard truth to wrestle with. And that's part of why I say this is such a weighty and a difficult passage of Scripture. And yet even in that, we see this picture of God's love and His glory. But we have to hold in balance intention passages like Romans 9 and and that understanding with other places that teach us that that uh, whosoever will may come that God is patient that God desires for all men to be saved the same paul that wrote this wrote that as well and so we have to hold those things in balance and consider the greater context because the real Question at play in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not a matter of does God choose some people beforehand and reject others beforehand? Although this does speak to God's role and those things, and we're going to come back and deal with some of that in just a minute. The bigger picture here is is God faithful to his promise? if god if, if if everything we've read in romans up to this point is true and if romans chapter 8 particularly is true that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of god then is god is god then did he fail because there are some there are some who don't know him some who have rejected his truth Paul, if even if you would say that the Jews, as he wrote earlier in in the book of Romans, that the Jews have rejected God's truth, and thus it's been made available to the Gentiles, that's essentially anyone who's not a Jew. And, And so, Paul, if that's true, then did God somehow fail? Is God faithful to His promise? How can you say that God is faithful to His promise and faithful and loving if there are people who don't know Him and who have rejected Him and don't believe? That's the real question that Paul is seeking to answer, and true, he does answer in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So that's what I want us to look at. And so as I say that, that's where I come back to this idea of we have to, we have to hold in balance these truths. We have to consider the tension that exists here, right? That this is a message about God's faithfulness throughout the generations, but we also have to, we have to keep in balance here the tension between truth. And frankly, here's the reality. And this is, let me just tell you where I stand. Let me, let me back up a half step just so that I go on record in case, because I don't, I don't uh, where I stand in all of this. I believe what the Bible teaches. And so if I'm reading a passage that the, that the Calvinists hold to and say, this is our key text and I'm preaching that passage, you're probably going to think, oh, he's Calvinist. And if I'm reading a passage that the non-Calvinists sometimes refer to as Armenians, or there's, that's not everybody who rejects Calvinism would put themselves in the camp of the Armenians, that's a whole other discussion for another day, right? But So if you're a non-Calvinist and you're reading one of the passages that the non-Calvinists would say, no, this is, this is what we understand about salvation, then, and I'm preaching that passage and you're probably going to think, he's not a Calvinist. I'll tell you plainly, I don't consider myself to be a Calvinist. And the, and the key reason that I personally don't is, it really is the L in the tulip, limited atonement. Because in a very simplistic way, limited atonement would teach that God died for the elect, that Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, his victory was for the elect. And, and I don't think that's true. I think it was for everyone. it's for whoever would call on the name of Jesus. And so I can't be a Calvinist because I, I, I can't go with the L. To some degree, I think there's nuance in a lot of this, but I'm, I'm, I'm all on board with total depravity. We're completely sin, sinners and through and through. Uh, unconditional election, yeah, I, I can go with that as long as we understand that it's from the perspective of, of what God sees, that God knows things that we don't. And, and so we, that doesn't neglect my agency in making a choice and making a decision to follow Jesus. I'm still responsible for that. And there's a way that you can reconcile those truths the L, uh, no, I can't. The I, irresistible grace, essentially says that when the Spirit draws, we're compelled to salvation. Well, again, I think there's nuance there. I don't think that. I don't think that it's rigid in a sense that it's like this, you know, sci-fi tractor beam that God's got locked onto you and He's pulling you in, and there's nothing you can do. But I do believe that no one comes to Christ unless the Spirit draws them. Jesus said as much in John six forty four. And so, okay. Uh, and then the P, the perseverance of the saints, that we would say once saved, always saved, right? If you're saved, you're going to persevere to the end. I'm on board with that. So there I am. I'm record now. You know where I stand on those things. Uh, but the, the point of all of this isn't ultimately about Calvinism. This isn't about Tulip. This is about God's faithfulness to his promise throughout the generations, and even as we consider God's faithfulness to his promise, there are two key truths in this text that we have to hold in tension. The text itself holds these truths in tension. And so let's look at this, okay? And they are God's mercy and God's sovereignty. We're gonna, we're gonna look at each of these momentarily God's mercy and God's sovereignty. So, first of all, this question what about God's mercy? What about God's mercy? Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, he goes on to answer, by no means. The question when we think about God's mercy is this. Is God's mercy unjust? That's the question that the text raises. That's the question that Paul wants us to consider. As we think about salvation and as we think about God's role in saving us from our sin, the question is, is God's mercy unjust somehow? And his answer is no, by no means. God's mercy demonstrates his love. Is God's mercy unjust? No. Rather, God's mercy is a demonstration of His love to us. We see God's mercy so that even as God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. At first glance, we might read that and think, that's not just that God just gets to choose who He's going to have mercy on and who He's not going to have mercy on. That doesn't seem just. But the reality is, That any of us would experience mercy at all is a demonstration of God's love. Because the problem is when we think about this question of God's mercy, we tend to think too much of ourselves. We tend to overestimate our goodness. If we believe what Paul has written already in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that there is no one who is righteous. No one. If you believe that you are a sinner, and apart from the saving work of Christ, you are condemned in your sin and deserving of hell, then you understand that you could be saved. The fact that you might be saved is nothing but an act of God's mercy and His love. And there's nothing that you did to earn or deserve that. There's nothing that you can do to make yourself, that you have done, to make yourself more worthy than anyone else. It's it's God's mercy. The pastor and and, and author J.D. Greer uh, has preached a helpful sermon on Romans chapter 9, a sermon that I personally found really helpful. And he offers an illustration in his sermon from D. James Kennedy. And, and I thought this was really good. So I'm just going to uh, borrow it. I'm borrowing this entirely that from, from, really it's from D. James Kennedy, but also uh, I found it in the sermon of, of J.D. Greer. And so he says this in thinking about and in, in illustrating this picture of God's mercy. Say you have five people planning to hold up a bank. They're, they're friends of mine. Well, I find out about it, and I plead with them not to do it. I beg them. And finally, they, they push me out of the way, and they're headed out to go rob this bank. I tackle the weakest-looking one, in the, and I wrestle into the ground. The others go. The other four go. They rob the bank, and in the process, they kill a guard and two civilians. They're captured, they're convicted, and they're sentenced to life in prison. But the one man that I tackled, that I wrestled to the ground, was not involved in the robbery, and he goes free. Now I ask you the question, whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame you? Is it your fault because you didn't tackle them to the ground, and you didn't, you didn't ar- is it your fault that, that they were arrested and went to prison? No. And this other man who's walking around free, can he say, well, because my heart is so good and resisted the temptation, I'm free. Is that true? No. No, the only reason he's free is because of me. I restrained him. So Kennedy says, so it is that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. And those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from its beginning to its end. And that's the picture of mercy that we see here. Listen, I'll be honest with you, I, I can't fully answer the question, if, if God is loving and merciful, why does He allow some to go uh, punished? I can't answer that question comprehensively. I can read the scripture, I can wrestle with that truth, but I'm not God, I don't know what He knows. But this is what I do know from Romans chapter 9. God has a plan, and even those who reject Him, bring glory to Him, according to His plan. His plans cannot be thwarted. His designs cannot be diminished. God is not a failure in any way. And although this may present difficult and, 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 and troubling uh, truths for us to wrestle with and try to try to take on, we have to, we have to hold that tension that understands none of us deserve mercy. And the fact that anyone rec- would receive mercy is nothing but an act of God's love and His kindness. The second key truth here that we have to contend with is God's sovereignty. And when I talk about God's sovereignty, what I mean is God's rule and his authority. When you think of a sovereign, think of a king, someone who rules, someone who reigns, someone who has authority. To say that God is sovereign is to acknowledge that he has authority over our lives. And so the question presented in the text, and this begins in verse 19, and really the way that it's presented in our English Translation, it's a series of questions. So you could begin in verse 19 and go all the way to verse 24, and you see a series of questions, right? But the big question, the one question that sort of encapsulates all of these questions is this Is God's sovereignty inconsistent with His goodness? Is God's sovereignty, is God's authority, if I were to use that word, is God's sovereignty, His authority, somehow inconsistent with His goodness? And the answer, again, is no. No. God's sovereign rule demonstrates his goodness. God's sovereign rule demonstrates. Look again, if you start in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the question there is, ultimately, it's one big question. Is God's sovereignty, is His authority inconsistent with His goodness? The truth is, it's not. God's sovereign rule is completely consistent with His goodness. Maybe you could could ask the question this way. If God is good, then why doesn't He save everyone? If God is good, then why doesn't He just save everyone? And the answer that Paul presents here, as difficult as it is for us to maybe contend with, is that God has made salvation available to everyone. And I'm looking forward into Romans chapter 10. We'll, we'll get there, okay? But I'm looking forward into Romans 10. God has made salvation. He wants, his desire is to make salvation available to everyone. But God in His plan, in His, in his foreknowledge, in His sovereign authority, in his, in his dominion over our lives, God has a plan that is working all things together for His glory. And His glory is always for our good. You remember that we saw that in Romans eight twenty eight, And we saw then, it was big picture glory, big picture good that was in view, right? Not the, not the small version of view that says, well, I'm going to get whatever I want. That if I'm just faithful long enough, if I'm just a good enough Christian girl or a good enough Christian boy, eventually it's all going to work. That's not the picture that we saw. But rather that God is always working for His glory, and His glory is always for our good. And so according to that big picture of God's glory and our good, we understand that His sovereign rule demonstrates His goodness. Now, we're going to go on to read about how God's desire is that that everyone would hear the gospel. And what's more, that He plans to use us, those of us who are believers, to take the gospel to those that don't know. And that's a part of this plan. That's a part of this picture of understanding. Is God faithful to His promise? Yes. 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 And so we have to understand that we have a role to play in sharing that good news, in sharing that promise with others. So we hold in tension our understanding of God's mercy and His sovereignty. In God's mercy, He's made a way for us to be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. In His sovereignty, in His sovereign authority, He will not let anyone through, if you will. He will not let anyone by, He will hold everyone accountable according to their decision to either accept or reject His gift of salvation. And so ultimately, the point of decision that that brings us to, each one of us, is we have to consider, has there ever been a moment in my life when I have turned from my sin and turned to Jesus by faith? Has there ever been a moment in my life when I have repented of my sin, when I have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin and confessed Him as Lord and Savior? Have I accepted that gift of mercy that is given freely, Romans 6, 23 says, a free gift of God, not something I earn or deserve, but given as a free gift. Have I ever trusted Him and accepted that free gift of His mercy? My hope and my prayer is that you would know with certainty, with confidence, that you have turned from your sin and you have turned to Jesus by faith. And even this morning, we want to give you the opportunity to respond in faith if, you if you've never made that decision. So in a moment, we're going to move into a time of invitation, a time of response. And in our time of response this morning, if you're ready today to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, if you're ready to, to, to act on His, His overtures of love and mercy extended to you through Jesus' work on the cross, if you're ready to surrender your life to Him today by trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, then we would encourage you, even as we sing this song in a minute, that you would come and that you would pray and let Brad and I will be here at the front. We would love to walk you through a prayer where you would surrender your life to Christ. The song that we're going to sing, but it's no matter of coincidence, that the song that we're going to sing during this time is called The Goodness of God. And it's a song about the goodness of God. It's God's goodness that we can receive salvation and forgiveness of sin. And so today we want to respond to His goodness, respond to His mercy, respond to His love, through faith and obedience to Him. If you've never trusted Jesus, then my prayer is that this would be the day, this would be the moment that you would receive Him by faith. And so I would ask you to bow your head and close your eyes with me in this moment of prayer as we prepare for this time of response. And then even as we begin to sing together in a moment, if God is moving in your heart, the invitation is open for you to come and receive Jesus by faith. Lord, we are grateful that we can, with confidence, turn to you in faith. Believing in your promise, believing believing in your goodness, we can turn away from our sin and turn to you in faith. So God, I pray specifically that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, Jesus, that this might be the day, this might be the moment that they call on you as Savior and Lord. And for the rest of us who have perhaps already made that decision to trust you by faith, God, would you move in our hearts? Remind us that it's not because of anything that was good or worthy or deserving in us that we were saved, but rather it was an act of your mercy and your kindness that was made available to us by faith. and Stir in our hearts that we would go and share that message with others as well, Lord. So we commit this time to You and even our response to You now, Lord, as we look to respond in obedience to Your Word. All this we pray in Your name, Jesus. Amen. As we stand together this morning to sing the song of invitation again, our staff.